We put our identity into so many different things in life. I was contemplating our identities this week, and all I can think about was how multi-layered we are as people. Let me explain what I mean by this. How, how would you define who you are? Okay? If I gave you a blank sheet of paper and wrote, I am dot, dot, dot at the top and gave it to you and said, tell me who you are, okay? how would you define yourself? What would you write on the paper? <laughs> if we thought about it, I would bet that we could fill the entire sheet of paper just describing who we are. First thing we'd write is probably our names, right? My, I am Matthew or Matt or Pastor Matt or I'm a Rudd, right? On another level, we'd define our identity in many superficial things, like our interests. So, I am a Ottawa Senators fan, or I am a Lord of the Rings nerd, or I am a musician, different things like this. You might define yourself by your wealth, or your athleticism, or your education, or your popularity, many different things. On another level, we define ourselves by our physical body. Think about who we are as a human, and I think, oh, I'm a redhead, I'm about 28 years old, I'm this tall, I weigh this much, and so we define ourselves that way. On another level, we define ourselves by our personality traits. So I would say I'm a naturally quiet person or an introvert. By uh, temperament, I'm what you call a melancholic choleric. <laughs> On a the MBTI personality test. I am an ISTJ, if you know what I mean. <laughs> On another level, we describe who we are by what we do. This is a very common one, right? So I am a pastor, or, or you might even get into that role. I am a teacher, or a leader, or a shepherd, and so on. I'm also still a student, like many of you are, working toward a degree. On another level, we describe ourselves by our heritage or our nationality or our citizenship. So I am a born American, I am a naturalized Canadian citizen, and I'm an Ottawan by residence. On yet another level. Okay, you get the picture here? <laughs> How complex we are? We define our identity by our family or our relationships. Okay, think about this one. Just one person, myself. I am a husband father, son, brother, uncle, grandson, nephew, cousin, and an in-law. <laughs> it's a lot of relationships. You think outside the family. I'm a neighbor, a mentor, a patient, a customer, a, a peer, and a friend. And on, I've got one more for you, one last level. Okay, We define ourselves by what we believe, especially spiritually. So I would say I'm a monotheist. I believe in one God. I'm a supernaturalist. I'm a creationist. Many other ists. But most importantly, I would say I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus. Have you ever thought about that idea of who we are? How complex and multifaceted and multilayered our identities are? Trying to put a definite finger on our identity is like trying to hit a moving target. We even change all the time. It can be difficult to define who exactly you are as human bodies and souls with distinct personalities and character and backgrounds and beliefs and so on. Well, over today and next Sunday, I want to suggest to you a core identity that we all should have. I believe that if we consider ourselves as Christians or as followers of Jesus Christ, that there is a specific way that the Bible, that God's Word says that we should see ourselves. So we would be the first thing that we write. I am this. I want to show you this week and next what our truest identity should be. Because I believe how we define ourselves, how we see ourselves, how we imagine ourselves at the core of who we are, should impact every aspect of our lives in drastic ways. The main passage we'll be looking at today is in Colossians, Colossians chapter 2 and 3. We're not going to get there for a little bit, but if you want to get ahead, you can turn there. It's on page 984 in your pew Bibles, Colossians chapter 2. But as you turn there, I just want to begin by praying, praying that God would open our hearts and our eyes up to him today. 
Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we want to see you this morning. We want to see you for who you are, and and I pray that that would draw us to our knees. For in light of who you are, we realize who we are. And so I pray that you would open our eyes, open our minds to understand, open our hearts to receive, and I pray that you would change each one of us by the power of your word this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now you might think that you've got everything I'm going to say today figured out. <laughs> that I'm just going to talk about how our first identity should be as a Christian. Well, yes and no. That's a start. But I believe our identity should go much deeper than that. There's a reason that I'm going to be talking about our identities right now over what's normally called Holy Week. Because our identity in Christ has everything to do with what happens on that first Holy Week. It's one of the main reasons that we celebrate the season every year and really throughout the year as followers of Jesus. We, we remember the cross. We remember the resurrection. Because I believe that this season most vividly displays for us who God is and then who we are and who we should be as followers of him. What I'd like to propose to you today, the first part of this, is that we should see ourselves as dying. Okay? Now, of course, we are all at different stages of dying. Our bodies are wasting away. We're getting older by the second. But that's not what I'm talking about this morning, okay? I believe we should see ourselves as dying with Jesus when he died. Okay? That's what what I really want to communicate. And thus, our identity should be what I'm calling a dying identity. A dying identity is just a phrase I coined to to describe us identifying our lives with Christ's death. Okay? Now, church may not be a normal part of your life, so this may be confusing to you, what I'm talking about here. This may be confusing to you even if you've been in church for years. What in the world do you mean by a dying identity? Or you might even go broader than that. What do you mean by Christ's death? By Jesus' death? What, What do our lives have to do with a man who died 2,000 years ago? How does that impact today? What does it mean to live our lives in a way that identifies with Christ's death? Well, for everyone's sake here, whether this is old or new for you, I'm going to start at the beginning, okay? If you've never heard this, you need to hear it today. And if you've heard this a thousand times, you need to hear it again. Okay? We believe, based on God's word, that we as humans were created in God's image. That he, we were a special creation that he placed on earth. And we were created to live in perfect harmony with God. Loving him and worshiping him and obeying him. But instead, we as an entire human race went astray. We disobeyed. We, we did what we call sin. We sinned against our Creator. We stopped loving Him. And instead, we started worshiping everything but Him. And God, as a perfect and holy God, rightfully and justly hates sin. He has to judge it. He has to call it to account. And the only just punishment for sin can be death. Because it is sin against an eternal and infinite and holy God. And so he has to judge it by giving death. We think our sins are trivial. But really, they're tragic. But God is not only holy. We also believe that he is loving by nature. That he loves his creation. And that God desired to reconcile us to him by showing us mercy and grace. So the infinitely wise mind of God devised a plan to be both just and merciful to sinners. And how he did this is that he sent his son, Jesus, fully God himself, to earth as a man. And Jesus lived a life entirely free from sin, something we could never do. And then one day, 
on the day that we call Good Friday, something shocking happened. This man that was revered and followed willingly let himself be betrayed, imprisoned, tried, and sentenced to die. But what Jesus was actually doing was carrying out God's plan. People couldn't see it, but he was carrying out God's plan to be both just and merciful. He was going to be killed in order to pay mankind's debt of sin. This was God's plan. I want you to do something a bit different today. I want everyone here to close your eyes. Okay? Everyone just close your eyes. Don't fall asleep on me. Okay? If you hear your neighbor snoring, just give him a punch. Okay? <laughs> close your eyes. Just listen to this story being told. Okay? It's a familiar story to many of us, but I want you to imagine hearing it for the first time. I want you to really imagine that you were there in person watching these scenes unfold. Okay? I'm going to read the story to you. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him. And they took a reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, then compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, or Calvary, which means place of a skull, They offered him wine to drink, mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priest with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, 
He saved others, cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and then we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemme sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, it is finished. And yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded For our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so God showed his justice by condemning sin through Jesus' death. And God showed mercy by offering the benefits of Jesus' death to all who would believe in him. And if we believe, our lives will be forever changed because of Jesus' death. You can open your eyes now. This is actually the first way that we should identify ourselves with Jesus' death. This isn't in your notes, but we need to believe that the cross was meant for us. The cross was meant for us. That we deserved that death. But because of the cross, if we believe, Jesus will save us from our sin and from death. You've never responded to Jesus' death before. You need to today. You've got to run to the cross. Humble yourself there. Say, I'm I'm a wretched sinner, God. You forgive me. It's the only way. This history-altering death should alter our lives in deep, and far-reaching ways. But what I want to communicate today is that it shouldn't just move us. It shouldn't just make us cry. It shouldn't just impact us. And it, it shouldn't only give us salvation the moment we believe. As I alluded to earlier, I believe that the death of Jesus should actually define who we are. It should define us. See, the Bible speaks of what we call union with Christ. Union with Christ means that through salvation we have become one with Christ. It doesn't mean that we become him, but it means that we have a solidarity with him, kind of like a marriage of two people becoming one. That's what the Bible means when it says over and over again that we are in Christ. Or in Christ, in Christ. Listen to what it says about Jesus' death in Colossians 1, verses 21 and 22. It says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind... 
doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. In other words, once we believe, God looks at us as if we were Jesus. Does that make sense? Once we believe, God looks at us as if we were Jesus. We have been united with him in his death. Romans 6 tells us this. In verse 3 it says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So, we're baptized into his death, we're united with him in his death. I'll put it very simply if you've lost me so far, okay? Through Jesus, God treats us as if we were on the cross with Jesus. Okay? That's very important to grasp. Through Jesus, God treats us as if we were on the cross with Jesus. You might wonder, well, how in the world does that work? How could we die with Jesus? Well, the answer is when we believe in Jesus, our fates become tied or bound to his fate. When we believe. If, just a bit of a trivial illustration for you. In the third Matrix movie, okay, when, the, when there's a million Agent Smiths, these evil agents running all over the world, the hero, Neo, defeats them by becoming an Agent Smith himself and then dying. Okay, that's how he wins. Now, how that works in the Matrix is some convoluted, confusing plot that only nerds really understand. But <laughs> the point is this. As soon as Neo became one of them, their fates were bound to his. And so when Neo died, everyone bound to him died as well. In a way, this is similar to how we died with Christ. Jesus became one of us and tied our fates to his. Now, obviously, we didn't die physically with Christ. None of us were even born yet. But when we believe, God binds our fates with Christ's fate. And so, he treats us as if we died with Christ on the cross. We didn't actually die, but if God is treating us as if we died, we might as well have. In God's eyes, we died. And we've got to change our perspective to match his. The fact that we died with Christ should be hugely life-altering. So we ask, how should this be life-altering? I mean, salvation is obvious, right? This is the first step, that we have to believe. We have to repent of our sins and turn to the cross. That's obvious. But how else should that impact our lives? How should it continue to impact our lives? How does it I define our identity, which is what I'm claiming today? How do we identify with the cross? That's what the passage I had you turn to in Colossians 2 is going to come in. And we're going to notice three things about what it means to live with a dying identity from Colossians 2 and 3. The first thing is this. A dying identity continually dies to man-made religion. Someone who identifies with Jesus' death will continuously die to man-made religion. Let me show you this principle Colossians 2, and we're going to be starting in verse 16. Verse 16 says this, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. 
Verse 20, catch this. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human, human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Okay, let me unpack this a bit for you. The Apostle Paul wrote these words to the church in the city of Colossae. And Paul was seeing in this church a lot of people who claimed to be Christians. But they were getting caught up in all kinds of rules and regulations, legalism. So these people, when they first came to Christ and first believed, they were probably just like anyone, thrilled that they came to Christ. Wow, Jesus freed me from sin. Hallelujah. We're going to follow him. And then someone would come along to their church, maybe a visitor, and they'd come and say, hey, you're all followers of Jesus? Great. But you know, I noticed something. There's something that you're not doing quite right. You're not following the Sabbath, keeping one day completely set aside to God, holy to God. And, and you know what? God won't really be happy with you unless you're obeying him in this matter. And, and the people of Colossae would think, wow, might be right. We've got to do that. We've got to start following the Sabbath and, and start keeping this. So they started to make sure they set aside one day a week to follow a Sabbath and not work at all. And keep it religiously. And they thought, God must be pleased with us. With what we're doing. We're being good Christians after all. And then someone else would come along and say, Colossi, I see some good things in you. I mean, you're keeping the Sabbath. You're doing these other things. But why are you eating pork? Why are you eating that? Don't you, don't you know that true followers of Jesus don't do those things? It's not right for us. And the, and the church would think, oh, man. Okay, that makes some sense. So we're going to stop this. We're going to stop eating pork altogether. And so they would go and eliminate any kind of pork from their diet, all along thinking, God, God, I hope that you're pleased with us because we're taking these steps. We're living for you. And this cycle went on and on, at, all the time adding rules to their walk with God. But as Tim Keller says, any time that you add to God's grace, you actually subtract from it. So Paul saw all this going on in the church and said, this has got to stop. And that's why he says in verse 16, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And these people, he's like, but no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and, and worship of angels, all these rules they are adding, going into detail about visions, puffed up with reason, without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to Jesus. And he was saying, don't let people judge you based on what you are doing or what you're not doing. Don't let them guilt trip you into following man-made or expired laws. Why not? Verse 20, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations like do not handle, do not taste, and do not touch? So what Paul is saying is believers have died to the elemental spirits of the world or because we died with Christ. In other words, true Christians have died to the law. They have died to what we might call checklist religion. Checking off all the boxes. And yet for so many Christians today, all their faith is is a bunch of laws. Don't do this. Can't do that. Christians shouldn't do that. How about you? Have you made some rules in your life that are supposed to make you good? Thinking that you can make God happy by doing certain things. You done that? Maybe 
You've determined in yourself to be a good, kind, and moral person, sharing with others in need. Maybe your religion is going to church occasionally, or even often, frequently. That's your religion. Maybe your man-made religion involves giving money to charities or to the poor. Maybe your rules include certain things that you're not supposed to do, certain things you're not supposed to drink, or you're not supposed to say, or you're not supposed to eat. A whole bunch of checkboxes. Maybe you've made rules on the positive side about Bible reading or prayer or tithing or small groups. Now, many of these things range from either decent things to very good things. But they're not rules. We make them to be. Make them into laws for ourselves. But when Christ died under the law, we died to the law. Now, what do I mean by dying to something? That's fairly easy to illustrate. If some person really comes to hate another person, just despises them, and they come up to them and say, you are dead to me. What do they mean by that? Is the person actually dead? No. Does it mean that they're going to go out and try to kill them? No, not necessarily. What they mean is that they intend to treat that person as if they were dead. So as if they don't exist anymore. They're not part of their lives anymore. They don't want to see them, talk to them, hear about them ever again. They're effectively trying to cut them off completely in their life. So Paul is its very similar. Paul is saying that we should be telling the law or religion, you are dead to me. You're dead to me, or more accurately, I am dead to you. I'm not part of your life anymore. So stop treating me as if I'm still required to submit to you. I'm not under you anymore. I'm under grace. Now that doesn't remove the need for obedience or for holy living at all. We're under grace and motivated by that. Not by rules. Romans 7, 4-6 says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. Now maybe difficult for you, as you think about this, to identify what rules you've made for yourself. Because they are well-meaning. They're well-intentioned. And they usually look good. Look at what it said in in Colossians 2.23. It said that these things have indeed an appearance of wisdom. They look good. They look wise. Promoting these things. But it's worth thinking about and figuring out what laws we've made for ourselves because Paul goes on to say that they're actually worthless. It says they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They're worthless. Now I said in your notes that a dying identity continually dies to man-made religion. And I said that because it's an ongoing battle in our lives, to remember our freedom in Christ. The battle has already been won on the cross, but our mind doesn't always remember that. We forget every day. And so we drift into thinking that we need to do more things to make God happy. This is the same reason I called it a dying identity, not a, a dead identity. Even though it's completely dead, we've got to re- keep remem- reminding ourselves that we are dying. We already died, and we've got to remind ourselves of this every day. When Jesus cried out, it is finished, he meant it is finished. Everything has been done. There is nothing 
else we need to do to please God to be united in Christ. He's done it all. Now some of you may be thinking, well, why, why should I want to do this? Why should I want a dying identity? I mean, even the name is negative. Death is a negative thing. Why should we want to be associated with death? Well, it's true. Death isn't very attractive. Neither was Jesus' death. It was gruesome. Brutal. You can cry thinking about it. But there's a reason that we should want to identify ourselves with something so gruesome. And that's because Jesus' death leads to a greater life than we can ever imagine. That's the second thing, that a dying identity looks forward to true life. When we identify ourselves with Jesus' death, we look forward to the life that he's promised. We're willing to die now to our current lives because what we have isn't really true life. True life, life the way God intended, never fades, never hurts, and never ends. Just like sin causes a death that is physical, spiritual, and eternal, Jesus offers life that is physical, spiritual, and eternal. Look how this passage in Colossians continues as we move into chapter 3. It says in verse 1 in chapter 3, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Okay, wait a second. Verse 1 didn't say that we died with Christ, did it? No, it said that we've been raised with Christ. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. See, verse 3 repeats the idea that we have died with Christ. So that for, if you have di- for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ. But then verse 1 says we've been raised. The fact is we've done both. In God's eyes, we died with Christ, and we were raised back to life with Christ. This point is why it's a two-part series. We're going to be looking more in depth on this next Sunday, on Easter Sunday, on how we have been raised with Jesus and what that means for us. But it's true. We're going to go into a little bit today. It's true that if we only died with Christ, it wouldn't be very attractive. Dying with Christ would seem as difficult, unnecessary, depriving, and unrewarding. I'd have no answer to your question of why should we want to do this. But praise God. That us dying with Christ was only half of his plan. 2 Timothy 2.11 says, The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. And what do Romans 6.5 say? For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection. Verse 3 again, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So if we died with Christ, Paul says our life is hidden with him. That's another way of saying that we've been united with him. It's, good. it's a good picture, though. It's kind of like uh, you're playing a game of hide and seek. Okay? And, and you're hiding, and as the person doing the seeking shouts out, ready or not, here I come, you, end up, you have no lot time left, and you end up hiding in the same place as someone else. And so when you get discovered, because two people can't hide very well together, but when you get discovered, they only discover the person that you're hiding with. Maybe they were blocking the view or something. But that person takes the fall and gets caught, and they just leave you alone and go on looking for everyone else. Because, and that, you don't get caught at all because that person was caught instead of you. But what we have here is if our life is hidden with Christ, Christ will be the one found every time. When God looks at you, again, he doesn't see you. 
righteousness, Christ. And because we're hidden with Christ in his death, we will be resurrected as well. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. What does it mean for us now that we've also been raised with Christ? It means that we get to look forward to that when that new life is fully expressed. It said in verse 1, If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. The NIV says to set our hearts and then to set our minds on things above. That means to set our attention and our thoughts as well as our desires on heaven. Our dreams on heaven. We get so caught up in pursuing things in this life. We don't even think about heaven. Quite the opposite of what Paul implies here implores us to do here. John Walverd says that believers' lives should be dominated by the pattern of heaven, bringing heavenly direction to their earthly duties. Be dominated by the pattern of heaven. So what heavenly things should we seek? How do we seek them? Let's often ask this question. What on earth will last forever? What lasts forever right here, right now? That's what we need to pursue. Think about it. People's souls, they'll last forever. God's word will last forever. Your character, your relationship with Christ will last forever. If you're pursuing these things, you are pursuing things of eternity. You're setting your mind and you're setting your hearts on things above. In going to the cross, Jesus really was setting the perfect example of seeking heavenly things. He was pursuing people's souls, he was fulfilling God's word, and he was providing the means for us to become holy and reconciled in God's sight. The whole foundation of our relationship with him. And he did all of this with his eyes firmly set on heaven. Hebrews 12 says that let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. See, people with dying identities will fix their eyes on heaven because their eyes are fixed on Jesus. And that's where he is. Okay, so a dying identity continually dies to the law, continually dies to man-made religion. Dying identity looks forward to receiving true life one day. One final thing. A dying identity is deadly to deadly sins. A dying identity is deadly to sin. We have, see, if we go through the three points again, we have to defensively fight off the tendency to make up laws for ourselves. We have to proactively seek after things of heaven instead of things of earth. Now Paul is going to say, we've got to go on the offense. We've got to start mercilessly killing sin in our life. Look what he says, starting in verse 5 of Colossians 3. Verse 5 says, put to death. Therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all 
and in all. So, Paul said that if we believed, we died with Jesus. And then we will be raised with him. Therefore, be deadly with sins in your life. That's what verse 5 said. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. As John Owen famously said, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Romans 8.13 echoes the same thought. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Yes, I am telling you to actually go out from here today and start killing things. Get your guns out. Get your swords out. Whatever weapons, your preference. Get violent. Go to war. That sounds unbecoming. Don't worry, I'm not telling you to touch a living soul. I'm not even telling you to step on a bug. But there are sins in our lives that we treat as friends or honored guests in our lives. We coddle them. We love them. When really, they are enemies of the most despicable nature, trying to kill you. Let me ask you this. What was God willing to give up in order to rid our lives of sin? He was willing, out of love, to give up his own life and the life of his son, Jesus. Everything. Now we ask, well, what are we willing to give up? What are we willing to give up in order to rid our lives of sin? This is part of what it means to take up our crosses and deny ourselves and to follow Jesus. If something causes you to sin, you've got to be ruthless with it. You've got to eliminate it for good. Romans 6.2 says, How can we who died to sin still live in it? Paul lists all kinds of sins in Colossians 3. We just read that, but sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, coveting, idolatry, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, and lying. Who's guilty of something on that list? If your hand's not up, you're all guilty of lying. (laughs) Sexual immorality of any kind. That includes lust. That includes porn. Anger. Slander. Lying. Coveting. Desiring something that someone else has. We do that all the time. Paul even says here that coveting is idolatry. Because it's putting our desires for something above our desires for God. We're worshiping other things. It's because of these things that Jesus was nailed to the cross. We often sing a song that says, Oh, to see the pain written on your face. Bearing the awesome weight of sin. Every bitter thought, every evil deed, crowning your blood-stained brow. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The image of Christ nailed to a cross for our sin has to stay at the forefront of our mind. I believe that that scene is the absolute number one weapon we have for killing sin. When temptation pops up in front of you, you can say, you can even say it out loud. I encourage you to. Name the sin. Sin. Whatever sin it is, Christ died to destroy you. And I died with him. Therefore, 
I'm going to kill you again right now. And then you have to do whatever you have to do to murder the sin. Remove it, eradicate it, destroy it. Don't just try to stop. You'll never succeed. Kill it at the source, no matter what it costs you. It's taking up our cross. Denying ourselves. And as we do this, amazing thing, that Paul says that we start looking more like Christ. When we put sin to death, we start looking more like Christ. Look at what it says in verse 9 in Colossians 3. It says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So when we put sin to death, we're being renewed in the image of God. Our image becomes a little bit more transformed into the image of Jesus. See, when we live out a dying identity, we're actually living out the identity of Jesus. Because Jesus himself died to be ruthless with sin. Ladies and gentlemen, if if we have believed in Jesus Christ and his death for us. We are dead men walking. We are dead women walking. We are dead to the law. We are dead to sin. And we look forward to a new life. This identity should impact us every day. Really, every hour of our lives. Placing that scene of Jesus on a cross, for me, at the forefront of our mind. And if you have not believed, I'd encourage you today, as C.S. Lewis says, to die before you die. Because there's no chance after. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, May we be humbled at the foot of the cross this morning. May we recognize our sin, the sin that drove you to die. And may we orient our entire lives around that boundless grace that you've shown us. We thank you so much. We have no words to even describe with this, how deeply this impacts us, what it means for us. Help us to live for you. Help us to honor you. In Jesus' name.